0: Hey everyone, I'm Sierra Combs and I'm the Women's Director here at the River Church. Thanks for checking out one of our messages today. We would love to get connected with you and your family. One easy way to do that is to text River Connect, one word, to 97000 or you can visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and our upcoming events. If you'd like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to eight four three two one or you can visit our website and click the gift tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope that you enjoyed the message today. Revelation chapter number 2, and we're going to pick up in verse number 12. We are continuing through the book of Revelation, and in Revelation chapter 1, we are introduced to the glorified Christ. We are introduced to the author of the book, John. He is exiled on the island of Patmos, and he sees the glorified Christ. And Jesus himself says, I want you to write down what I'm going to show you. I want you to write down what you see, and I want you to send it to uh, seven churches, seven churches that were in uh, Asia Minor or the modern-day country of Turkey. And so John begins to write the revelation of Jesus Christ. And chapter two and three, which we we know is chapter two and three, are seven little letters or seven postcards to these seven churches. Uh, they were real churches. They were real groups of believers gathered in seven cities, and the cities kind of formed this little circle, kind of postal route. Uh, the city that we're going to look at today was about fifty miles away from Smyrna. And another 50 miles or 100 in total away from Ephesus. So it kind of was this little um, systemic or systematic postal route. But it was a real group of people. Now, each of these seven churches are challenged in a unique way, they are um, encouraged by the Lord in a unique way. The Lord um, highlights or accents a particular part of his character when speaking to them as we see at the very beginning of each letter. So let's look at verse number 12 of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. Jesus is speaking here and John is recording the words to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now when we are... Reading this letter, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I I know the, the spot you're in. I know the city in which you live. I know the assignment which you have been given. And we see back in chapter number one, and I want you to look there in verse number 12, John hears the voice of who he would later recognize as Christ. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed. And then he begins to describe the glorified Christ. Uh, look at verse number 20, same chapter. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So these messengers, these these heavenly messengers dispatched from the throne of God. And then the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in in these letters, there is the call very often to repent of a specific sin in the church. And then Jesus says, if you don't, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. Basically, in our verbiage, it would be, it's, it's lights out if you do not repent. I will remove the light that you are in this this world. And so those lampstands are symbolic of the churches. So what do we see there? We see Jesus holding the messengers of the church in his hand. And we see Jesus moving around and present with his church. Here's what I want you to see in verse number 13, Revelation 2:13. Jesus knows where you and I are. You and I are living. He knows where we're at. He's not unaware of the circumstances of the church. Now, let me just say this. When Jesus says he is holding um, the seven stars in his hands and he's moving around the church, he's not moving building to building. So this building isn't a church. It's just a building that we assemble in, that the church gathers together. The church are people of God who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. That's who the church is. So in our house, our kids will say, well, we're going to church in the morning. And my standard response, they've heard it 10,000 times. And um, they love it every time, let me tell you. They love to be doctrinally corrected. They embrace it. They say, thank you, Daddy, for telling me that. They say, we're going to church. They say, no, we don't go to church. And their response will be, we are the church. That's right, Dad. Thank you for letting me know that. You are such a wonderful father and pastor and husband and man of God. Every time I make that mistake, please correct me. Now, I don't know if your kids speak to you that way, but mine certainly do. Uh, um, I also, at some point, fell and hit my head uh, this week. Uh, They do not say that. They go, yes, Dad, I know. You said it last Sunday and the Sunday before. And then they roll their eyes. And I go, repent! No, I don't do that. Okay. (laughs) But it's a really important thing to me that we recognize that those of us who have repented of our sins and believed in Jesus, we don't go to church. We are the church. And so when Jesus is speaking to the church, he's not speaking to a building. He's not speaking to an ecclesiastical order. He's not speaking to a 501c3. He's not speaking to just the elders. He's speaking to the people of God. And I hope that you'll take great encouragement to know this, that God knows where you're at. He knows the spot you're in. He knows the assignment that you've been given. It is not by accident that here we are gathering in May of 2023 in Goodrich, Michigan. That is by divine design. God knows not just where we're at in a spatial sense, and in a geographic sense. God knows where we're at culturally. God is not unaware of what's happening around his people or within the church. God knows where we're at. And like Esther was told, maybe God has put you in this spot for a time such as this. I want you to understand that God, by divine design, had you born in the the place that you were born, in the time that you were born, in the family that you were born, on purpose. It's It's an assignment from the Lord that he has given to you and he's given to me. And sometimes we can become covetous or jealous and saying, Man, if I would have lived back then, it, it would have been nicer. If I'd have lived, you know, in this spot, and we think maybe in those, those terms. The reality is God has put you where He wants you to be. He's put me where He wants us to be. He knows where we're at. The church at Pergamum, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. And then he says, where Satan's throne is. Now that right there is a very startling statement, especially to us. So you think, whoa, I'm sorry, where are they at? Jesus says, they're they're in a town and in a place where Satan's throne is. Now they were in the city of Pergamum. It was about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. It was an incredibly distinguished city in Asia. Uh, It sat up on a a mountain or like a a hill or a ridge approximately 1,000 feet above the plain. It had a massive library, second only to the library at Alexandria, 200,000 handwritten volumes. And later on, it was a gift from Mark Antony to Cleopatra, this particular library there. The Pergamines, as they are called, the folks that lived in Pergamus, they are credited with the invention and widespread use of parchment. So they would take animal skins and they would turn them into things that could be written on. So a lot of things that have been preserved in in history over the last 2,000 years have been preserved on parchment. Paul passed through there in Acts 16, so a little bit of church history there. But Jesus says, I know where you dwell. And he says, it is a place where Satan's throne is. Pergamum was a really extraordinary city. I was watching a a documentary on Pergamum and just seeing some of the the architecture there. And of course, it's been 2,000 years, and so buildings have crumbled, and you can still see the pillars, and you can still see the, the foundations and outlines, and you can kind of imagine your mind, and maybe with an artist's help, the renderings to help you kind of see what it must have been like or what it could have been like in Pergamum in its, in its heyday. Well, Pergamum was not just a place where there was this massive library, but there was also um, huge amounts of uh, temples to false gods and goddesses there. One of them was a massive altar to the god Zeus. Uh, William Barclay, who writes a lot of great cultural things and commentaries, he says this, this altar was built to Zeus and it stood 800 feet above pernamum uh, 's uh, hill. It was 40 feet wide and it stood on a projecting ledge of rock. It looked exactly like a great seat or throne on a hillside. Then he makes one more note. He said, all day, every day, it smoked with the smoke of sacrifices all, uh, offered to Zeus. So it was this incredibly uh, you know, th- this, this architectural design that, that dominated the scene there in Pergamum. There was another uh, temple there to the goddess uh, Asclepius. And this one, this god, goddess was represented by serpents. And uh, this is, I would say, the creepiest of all the temples in my mind. Uh, If you uh, Google a symbol for, like, uh, medicine, sometimes you'll see snakes wrapped around a pole. Uh, That's where this finds its roots. So people from all over the known Greco-Roman world would come to Pergamum to this temple or hospital to be diagnosed or to be cured or to find some sort of healing. And so what they would do is they would come into the temple. They would be put in some sort of trance. They would all be laid in a big room and then it would be pitch black, and then they would release snakes into the room. And these snakes would slither over top of people. Uh, you're welcome for that nightmare, by the way. Uh, so some of you won't recover for the rest of the sermon. And I'm a bit mean, and I kind of am smiling. <laughs> some of you are like, uh, and, and just terrible. So that's what they would do. So some uh, that was going on in uh, Pergamum. It was also a great center of worship to the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire saw this worship of Caesar as kind of unifying the Roman Empire. Uh, One particular note, again from Barclay, he said it was law that once a year every Roman citizen should go into the temple of the emperor, burn a pinch of incense to the godhead of Caesar, and say, Caesar is Lord. So Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell. And it's a place where Satan's throne is, the center of his kingdom. Jesus says, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So we don't know about Antipas a a whole ton. What we know is he was martyred for the cause of Christ. He was killed. A beautiful thing is given to him from the Lord. Look at what Jesus calls him there. He says, Antipas, my faithful witness. If you jump back to chapter one in verse number five, John is introing the book. He says, this is from who was and is and is to come. This is from God before the the seven spirits, so from the Holy Spirit as well. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The word martyr is witness. So he was a faithful witness, a faithful martyr for the cause of Christ. It's such a beautiful thing. One commentator said, Jesus honors this man by giving part of his name to him. He was a faithful witness. He held fast to the name of Christ, and the church held fast to the name of Christ, even in the midst of uh, violent persecution. Now, hold your spot there in Revelation. Go to the left, go to Matthew chapter number 10. So Jesus is telling the apostles, the disciples, that persecution is going to come. You don't need to be afraid. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. So don't have any fear of them. But here's the challenge from Christ. Verse 32, so Matthew ten thirty-two. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I, will, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Look at the very next thing that Jesus says here. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. Now, Jesus came to bring peace, but, but look at the context of what he's saying here. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, And a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Persecution is coming. That we see that in the scripture. We see the warning in Smyrna to them particularly. We see now in Pergamum that they were enduring persecution. But even in the face of persecution, violent persecution, they were not denying or rejecting the name of Jesus. Here's why. Jesus said this. You will be persecuted. And you will be persecuted to the point, verse 36 there of Matthew 10. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Meaning to follow Christ means that people in your own family will not understand. They will call you a radical. They will say you're too extreme. They'll say things like, can you tone it down? They'll ask even insulting things like, did you join a cult? Because following Jesus is not something in in the world's mind... Following Jesus, Christianity is something that people may do a few times a year, or maybe on the, you know, the dedicated side, they'll go once a week. Man, and they read the Bible, they pray. But to follow Jesus means that he is Lord of our life, meaning there is a total and complete surrender of all that we are. All that we have, all of our resources, all of our hopes and dreams, all of our plans, all of our finances, the full direction of our life has been surrendered to Jesus to the point that people will not understand that. And there comes this crossroads for believers. Will we acknowledge Jesus before men? Jesus said, if you do that, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will also deny you before my Father who is in heaven. This is, again, not a, a, a prompting from Jesus to be obnoxious, but it is a prompting from Jesus to be bold, to be courageous, to not be ashamed. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God that leads to salvation, so I would say, there is no such thing as a secret Christian. You will either acknowledge the name of Jesus and be acknowledged in heaven or you will deny the name of Jesus and you will then be denied before the Father who is in heaven. Now let's go back to Revelation Antipas was killed. There's speculation about him that is interesting, but we we won't spend time on that today, but he was martyred for the cause of Christ. He was a faithful witness and he was killed in Pergamum and Jesus makes note again where Satan dwells. These guys got a tough assignment. These, these, These guys got a Uh, a a tough job ahead of them. Satan's throne is there. They're surrounded by the emperor cult. They are surrounded by this massive throne-like altar to Zeus. You got people traveling from all over the world to come there so that snakes can slide over them. You also have another temple to uh, food and drink and pleasure, so there's all types of sexual morality there. That's what's going on in, in Pergamum. But what does Jesus say to this church? Verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. You. Like, this is the thoroughness of God. Like, sometimes we think, like, for me... This is something I struggle with in my life. I struggle with comparative righteousness, meaning I know I'm not like Jesus, but I'm better than that guy. Now, that might sound silly to you, but I'd be like, well, I, I treat my wife better than he treats his wife, or I feel like I'm a better dad than him, or I'm, I'm not going out and getting hammered drunk. Okay, so I, I'm, better, I, I'm better than that. I know I'm not what I'm supposed to be, but I feel okay by comparison to other people. And so sometimes for me, and maybe it's true for you, maybe it's not. Maybe I'm just projecting and this has become therapy. Um, but like for me, I look and go, that, that's sometimes how I can, I can justify uh, compromise in my life. Or I can justify not addressing sin in my life. But the Lord is super thorough. He taught me this last week. Was it last Sunday? So last Sunday, my wife said, hey, we got to load our pigs uh, they're going to the butcher or freezer camp, if it makes you feel better. Uh, so so we had to load the pigs. And then my wife said, hey, we need to put a round bale in in, in for the cows. And I'm like, okay. And so I'm like, "Why? we'll I, I put it on a tractor and we'll go, we'll go push it up in there. So the round bale is about 500 pounds. It's not a gigantic one, but I'm like, we'll roll it up in there and we'll drive it over there and, and push it in there. So it's just me and my wife. kids were gone to youth group or something like that. And so we go over there. She's like, I don't know if we can do this. I'm like, for sure we can do this. So we, we flip it up we put it in there and I like put my shoulder into it and I just slide it in there. And I'm not going to lie. I was feeling pretty buff. Okay. I I, I really was. I I was like, and I like kind of like flexed a little bit and she's like, Ooh, way to go. And I'm like, I'm kind of the man. And my wife thinks I'm the man. Three seconds later, Thousand one, thousand two, thousand three. I walked about six feet, slipped in the mud, and fell totally down. No joke. Literally, it was like, I am kind of awesome right here. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And it was in that moment where I'm like, I got the memo, Lord. I got the memo. And the Lord has done that multiple times to me because I am stupid. But uh, I, I got the memo, right? It was just so thorough. He's like, you know, I gave you that strength, and you were being prideful even with your wife. I'm not allowing you, allow you to be prideful. So there I was, fallen, and I can't get up on uh, the mud. Like, it was just this thoroughness of the Lord. So what does the Lord say? He acknowledges he knows where they're at because he assigned them there. And he acknowledges the difficulty of their circumstances, but then he has to speak honestly uh, and clearly and confrontationally about what's happening in the church. So look at verse 14. He says, But I have this against you. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual morality. So also. So we can take those couple words from the beginning of verse 15 and kind of tie these together. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Now, what we know about the Nicolaitans is a lot of speculation. There was a guy in the book of Acts, one of the early prototypes of a deacon whose name was Nicholas. So some believe that he, he went sideways and then started this own group that became known as the, the Nicolaitans. We don't know if that's true or not. But what we see here is we see Balaam. Now, Balaam was an Old Testament prophet in the book of Numbers. So I want you to hold your spot in Revelation. And I want you to turn back to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 22. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. If you've never read the story of Balaam, it's a super interesting story. Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, and into 25. So Balaam was a prophet. I can't go into all this because I don't, I don't want to spend a ton of time here. But God spoke to Balaam and when Balaam spoke, it was, it was God speaking. And so this guy, this enemy of Israel named Balak, B-A-L-A-K, came and said, hey, I want you to curse the people of God, offered him some money to do that. and, And the story kind of meanders from there. Balaam decides he's going to go do that. And so he gets on his donkey and his donkey was way smarter than him. And the donkey saves his life three different times and then God in his kindness gives, the ba- gives Balaam's donkey the permission to speak. And so it's this, this wild, miraculous, crazy, gracious story that God was even using a donkey to save another donkey uh, in the Bible. And, and so Balaam's story progresses there. Well, he tells King Balak, listen, I can't curse, I can't curse the people, but here's what you do. Go get some idol-worshiping women and have them begin to intermarry with Jewish men. And that will, that will start to corrupt things. So look at Numbers chapter 25. So verse one says, the people began to whore after the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves with Baal or to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman. It goes on from here. Verse seven, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it. he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, look at this. the plague comes to an end. Not before those who died by the plague were 24,000. How did that all happen? It happened because Balaam was hired to curse the people and couldn't do it. So he says, here's how you can destroy the people. You can start yoking them up, verse 25, yoking them, or or chapter 25, you can start yoking them up with Moab and they'll begin to pursue sexual morality, they'll begin to pursue idolatry. Now go back to Revelation chapter number two. Balaam's mentioned a few times uh, in the New Testament. Balaam becomes the archetype of a prophet for hire. A prophet will say or manipulate for money. In the church at Pergamum, Jesus Christ says, I have a few things against you. Man, and as that letter had to be read for the very first time, I can imagine everyone taking a deep breath right there. Because Jesus says he has a few things against you. Oh boy. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. The stumbling block was to marry foreign women. Marry women that didn't believe in the one true God. So that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, practice sexual immorality. So also... So they weren't worshiping Baal, specifically, by name, in Pergamum. But the teaching, the practices, I suppose, had uh, stayed the same. The names had changed. And now it was the Nicolaitans. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what do we see with that kind of combination of Balaam and the Nicolaitans? We see that likely it was the same type of teaching that was permitting sexual immorality, that was permitting uh, idolatry, that was leading to destruction. Look at what Jesus says in verse 16. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. As I was studying this, this is what I started to... I feel like the Lord was illuminating in my heart. And as I kind of underlined some, some key words for me, look again at verse 14. You'll see the word teaching, and you'll see the word taught. You'll see the word in 15, so also you have some holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Look back at verse number 12. The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Verse 16, I will come and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Go back to Revelation chapter number 1. John's vision of the glorified Christ, he describes his clothing, and he describes his hair, and he describes his eyes, and he describes his feet. He describes his voice. He describes what's in his right hand. And then in verse 16, he says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So, what was the problem in Pergamum? The problem was the teaching. It was what was being taught. Now, in the scripture, we see the word of God being likened to or compared to uh, a sword. You hold your spot in revelation go to the left go to Hebrews chapter number 4 Hebrews chapter number 4 verse number 12 The Bible says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You can leave Hebrews, go to the left a little more, go to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. Paul is giving the what we know as the armor of God. Verse eighteen. Excuse me. Verse seventeen. Take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we can go back to Revelation 2. There in the church at Pergamum, they were holding fast to the name of Jesus. They did not deny the name of Jesus. Even in the days where Antipas, faithful servant, faithful martyr, faithful witness of God, was killed, but there were some problems that were. Corrosive in the church so very often the church and believers gear up for attacks from the out the outside for this church it was persecution was coming they they were geared up they knew that the, the people at the altar to Zeus and they knew the the caesar worship and they knew the the parties and and they knew all of those different things on the outside, but something had crept into the church, and it in some ways sounded Balaam was a prophet. Sounded like he was speaking for God. The Nicolaitans had a a Christian or authentic ring to them, but what they were doing was they were teaching people and leading people into verse fourteen there of chapter two. They were leading people back into idolatry and that was leading people into sexual immorality all because there was wrong, bad, air filled teaching. So just walk that backwards. What keeps us from sexual immorality? The psalmist said, what, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. How, how can we avoid idolatry? We place ourselves under sound teaching of the word of God. We live in a, a culture where there is just mass amounts of quote unquote Christian teaching and Christian books and Christian podcasting, Christian blogs and Christian Influencers and celebrity—I mean, just—it's—it's it's unbelievable the um, the amount of material that you can access through your phone in in sixty seconds. It's, it's unbelievable. And this idea of love and tolerance and being gracious has been used to permit false teaching to invade the church. In Pergamum, the air-filled teaching was leading to devastating consequences. It was leading to the allowance of sexual morality because, man, we're in the Greco-Roman world. We'll hold fast to Jesus' name. We'll endure persecution. But, man, we can't address everything. Culture permits it. We don't want to be too extreme. We don't want to offend people. And so the teaching was permitting sexual morality, and then it was permitting idolatry. When it comes to idolatry, I hope that you don't think the Bible is talking about setting up a statue in your backyard. I I suppose it includes that. But if you have a a statue in your backyard that you're planning on sacrificing a goat to this week, there's major problems. And if you don't have that, don't think that you still don't have major problems. What we're talking about with idolatry is the world's philosophy, is the world's way, is what the world lays its life down for, what the world looks to for satisfaction and fulfillment As believers, we're not looking to the same things to fulfill us that the world does. I mean, so many men sacrifice their lives, their family, their health, their marriages on the altar of quote unquote success, ambition, riches, and just burn it all up. Because they're looking for that to bring them satisfaction, that to bring them fulfillment, that to bring them joy. And if I could just reach that level, then I'll be happy, I'll be satisfied, I'll be content. We may not have idols in the backyard that we're going to sacrifice an animal to this week, but people are living idolatrous lives all over the place. There's nothing wrong with sports, but we live in a culture that is idolizing sports. We think that if our sons and daughters can play a sport to a certain level, then that will bring them meaning, that will bring them purpose, that will bring them fulfillment, that will bring them satisfaction. Listen, have your kids play sports. Don't have your kids play sports. That's a personal decision you get to make between you and the Lord. But let's not think we don't have idols and temples all over the place. There are idols and temples to the God and goddess of sports all over the place and I've watched family after family Jen and I lament it over the last 25 years of ministry we watched family after family burn their lives down just getting their kid to the next hockey tournament the next travel level and then we've watched them with devastation when their kid's like yeah I'm done and then you realize I don't know if it was the kid who they were trying to find meaning and purpose I think it might have been the mom and dad Idols. Sports has become an idol. Success has become an idol. Fitness becomes an idol for people. Sex becomes an idol. What keeps us from idolatry? It is... The sound teaching of the word of God. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 12. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Where does that sword come from? It comes from the mouth of God. How is he gonna war against that? Verse 16, repent. Like church, repent. If not, I will come soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. The truth of God will crush lies. So why do we each week spend a significant amount of time opening the word of God? Here's why. The word of God, the kindness of God that we see in the scripture is meant to lead God's people to repentance. Now I'm going to use an illustration here. If you send me an, il- an email about this, uh, this illustration, I will delete it before I read it. Okay? Okay. When I was a kid, every sermon would end with an altar call. How many of you grew up that way? Right? Awesome. They're the saved people. Uh, So I'm just kidding. (laughs) So it grew up with an altar call. And um, there were one of two songs that typically played. It was Just As I Am, okay, like from Billy Graham. Uh, But we didn't do that. We played I Surrender All, even better, Okay. I don't know if it's better or not. I surrender all. And you knew it was a serious altar call if they said, let's have another verse. And the altar call was an opportunity for people to come and pray, come and surrender things to the Lord. Now, some of you are like, awesome, are we gonna do altar calls every week? No. So don't send me that email. But what is the Word of God preached each week supposed to do in our hearts? It's supposed to convict us of sin and bring us to the altar of repentance. It's it's not just supposed to be a mental exercise where we hear some things, and I hope you take notes, and I hope there's a mental engagement. But when we encounter the Word of God, it's a sword. And that sword, according to Hebrews 4.12, pierces through all of the facades that we put up. And it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It tells us where we're lying to ourselves. Where we're self deceived, where we're trying to deceive other people, and it points to sin in our heart. So every time we open the Word of God, whether it's in this setting, listening to the preaching of the Word of God, or whether it's opening the Word of God to read it ourselves, we are being confronted by the truth of the Scripture. It's sandpaper on our soul, it's a, a Brillo pad, it's a wire brush that is trying to cleanse us and wash us. That's why we are cleansed, Hebrews 5, or excuse me, Ephesians 5 says, with the washing of the word. Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So why do we open the word of God? Why do we read the scripture? Why do we meditate on the word of God, the scripture? Why do we memorize the word of God? Because it is convicting us of our sin. So if you finish, if I finish this message, or if you finish opening the word of God, and you're like, oh, that's cool. I think you missed it. Because we see in these letters from Jesus that there is a, I know where you're at. And to Pergamum specifically, it's like, hey, I know the assignment you have, but also I have just a few things against you. And so what does the word of God do? One author said the sword cuts both ways. So the word of God encourages us and says, hey, way to go. But also the word of God says, hey, we got to talk about this. One of my favorite quotes about the Bible, and I don't even know who to attribute it to. It's not original to me. When you and I read the Bible, the Bible is also reading us. It's different than any book in that way. So the word of God is speaking to us and it's challenging us and it is back to verse number 16. It is calling us to... Repentance. It's calling us to deeper surrender to Christ. Maybe for you, it is sexual immorality in your life. Maybe it is idolatry in your life, and you're hearing, you're encountering the the inspired sacred words of the scripture, and the word of God is convicting you. Man, don't run away from that. Therefore, repent. To Pergamum, Jesus says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them. Some say that he will war against the church. That's who the them is. Some say he will come and he will war uh, against the false teachers. My opinion when I read that, and you can have a different opinion. That's okay. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. What does Jesus do? Jesus promises to purify his church. How does he purify his church? The word of God. So a sword is coming. A sword of division. A sword of judgment. A sword of separation. That's what the word of God does. So much of what the church is battling about today centers here. Is the Word of God inspired, meaning God breathed? Is the Word of God inerrant, meaning is it true? What it says is true, is true for all time. Is the Word of God authoritative? I will say this definitively. We believe that the Word of God is God breathed, it is inspired by God. And every word, the people who wrote it, the men who wrote it, were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. We believe what it says is true. is true for all time. And we believe it is the final authority. As a believer, you have to settle that in your mind. Otherwise, I will give you this warning in, in love. You will be tossed all over the place by every wind of doctrine, the Bible says You have to lock in. The word of God is the authority. The word of God is from God himself. The word of God is true. And the word of God is what will transform and change you. So I think Jesus says, you repent, otherwise I'm coming. There there are some in the church who are faithful. There are some who are not, those who are not faithful need to repent of their false, uh, errant teaching. That's similar to Balaam. That is like the Nicolaitans. We know the Nicolaitans back in Ephesians, back to the letter of Ephesians. Jesus says, I hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. These seem to be tied back into verse number 14. When someone would come to know Christ, they had to decide are they going to follow Jesus or are they going to go back to the idol worshiping? That's what the food sacrifice to idols means. Are they going to go back to that former life? And that would likely eventually mean or be partnered with the practice of sexual morality. Are they going to go back to that? Jesus says the one who endures. Yeah, you don't need the food sacrificed to idols. I will give you the hidden manna. Manna was the food that God had literally fall from the sky every morning to provide food for the children of Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. They had sinned against God, they were under judgment, and yet God was having food fall from the sky every single day to provide their daily bread. Think about the kindness and the grace of God. Jesus said, the one who endures, the one who is faithful to the end, I will give some of the hidden manna. Who really was the hidden manna? It was the bread of life, it's Christ. So true satisfaction, true uh, fulfillment, fulfillment. And he says, I will give him a white stone. So we see Christ's hair in chapter 1 is white. We see a white raiment in chapter 3. We see white robes in chapter 7. We see white linen. We see the great white throne judgment. So purity is what is being talked about here. So we see a white stone here. So a Roman custom was that a white stone with an athlete's name was given to him when he was victorious at the athletic games. That white stone became a ticket into the awards banquet. Won't well, you see what Jesus is saying, and, and the church in Pergamum understood these references. There was going to be, if we conquered, the gift of the hidden manna, not food sacrificed to idols, but food that really satisfies it, is the, the bread of life, which is Christ himself. And I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Look at this. This is intimate understanding. It's an intimate understanding that God knows. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. Think think about the Olympics as we understand it. Not every Olympian competes in every event. They have a specific event that they compete in, that they train for, that they specialize in. God knows where you're at. God knows your assignment. God knows whether that is a a child who is difficult, prodigal, away from the Lord, God knows if that is a a, a practical thing in your life right now where you're dealing with aging parents. God knows if that means a difficult neighbor. God knows if that means a terrible boss. He knows where you're at. He knows what you're facing. He knows the difficulty that you're going to go through. He says to the one who conquers, know that you are going to be given the hidden manna. you will be satisfied. All of that strain, all of that work, all of that effort, all of those trials, there will be a feast And a satisfying feast with Christ in heaven. And then he says, I will give him a white stone. He knows the athletic event that you have been called to. And there's an intimate knowledge here. That there will be a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the things that you endure, the things that I endure... God knows and one day he will, in the beautiful figuratism, His, he will hand you a white stone and on that white stone is a name that is a beautiful, intimate, private thing that between you and God you go, oh, you knew. Oh, you knew the whole time. You, you knew that I was facing that. You knew that trial I was going through. And look, at you, you gave me, sorry for my silliness here, but you gave me a nickname telling me I know what you've been through. It's this beautiful wink from God that's personal. It's not like he starts to stamp this, they, oh, okay, this person had sickness. Here you go. You get a white stone that says you, you did the medical thing. You get this. Like, no, these are not generic at all. These are personal and individual, and Jesus says you conquer, there'll be a, a, a hidden manna. There'll be a feast For you, I will give you a white stone. It's a new name written on that stone. No one knows except the one who receives it. I had one of our deacons say something to me this week. He has no idea what he said and how God used it. I called Jen afterwards and I just, I was like, what? So doing ministry for the last 20-plus years, I've learned a lot. And I hope by the grace of God I'll continue to be able to learn and grow. But I have been through some weird things that have given me a unique set of skills. I feel like Liam Neeson in The Taken when I say that. And uh, so I have a unique set of skills. So... We were sitting with the deacons and I was telling them how I was trying to help this church who was really going through some some difficulties and were wrestling through how to deal with pastoral failure. And it was something that I've dealt with multiple times. And he looked at me and he said, Do you ever think that's just kind of a, a calling from God on your life? And I'm hesitant to tell you what the first words out of my mouth were, but I just want to be blunt and honest. The, the first words out of my mouth were, I hope not. Jen said it to me this last week. There's these interesting things that were coalescing. The amount of people in our lives who we love dearly and have cared for that have lost a child that God has let us minister to, the numbers just continue to grow exponentially. And you think, those are not really areas, God, that I'd like to be gifted in to help people. And then you pause and you go, nope. You know where I dwell. Here's my assignment. And I say that not so you think, oh, man, our pastor's awesome, or Josh, you're great. I say those things because sometimes what God assigns us to We go, no, thank you. (laughs) I really don't want to do that. Or what God's assigned us to, we quit. We quit. Maybe you are in a marriage that is very challenging. Don't quit. God knows where you're at. Stay in. Stay faithful. God knows. And the one who conquers, there'll be a great feast. There'll be a great celebration. And Jesus himself will hand you a white stone. And you'll glance down at that and go, you knew. You knew the whole time. Maybe it's a medical thing that that's so personal, that's so difficult, you can't even tell people about. But God knows. He knows where you dwell. Maybe it's a family situation where you've got a brother, a sister, or a mom, or dad, or kid who thinks that you being a Christian is absolutely foolish and stupid and ignorant. God knows that. Stay faithful. He knows where you're at. And there'll be a time where God acknowledges that personally to you. Man, that gives me great hope that gives me great joy, that gives me great peace to know that every part of my story God is writing and every part of your story God is writing. Sometimes we want to quit, sometimes we want to hit the eject button, sometimes we want to bail out and we look around and we go, man, I feel like Satan's throne is here and Satan is here and this is just terrible and Jesus says, no, 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 I know where you're at. Stay the course. Stay the course. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you, and one day we'll celebrate together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that we are deeply committed to it. Lord, of my own life, I know that you've been convicting me that I have not been spending enough time in the Scripture. God, I repent of that, knowing that I need your teaching and your word to keep me from idolatry, to keep me from sexual morality. Oh Lord, I pray that you would just work today in our hearts. I pray God that you would bring us to repentance. I pray that we'd feel a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance that leads to life that there will be no regret there. Oh, we praise you, Lord, for your love and your promises to us. Lord, I think about that white stone that you know And one day, God, you'll give me a new name that reflects the journey that you have carried me through. What a cool celebration. In Jesus' name.